once we got one locked down, we just got to talk with the company more on it. It's U.S. based. Then the other issue is getting the, I'm not, I'm, like I said, I'm not a full tech guy. I'm learning as I go from professionals. But the other one is getting the receiver transmitters that we need that um, are less susceptible to jamming because they fly a lot higher and with a lot stronger base systems and everything. Uh, but we're getting there. Uh, the one airframe we're looking at, when we're fully done, we'll have a 40-kilometer range roughly with about a 10-kilogram payload for the ones that we're looking at. And like three hours of flight time, basically a switchblade on steroids. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And um, are are you setting up something for the 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 um, the penetrators? Are you setting up that type of line for you, or that's going to come after you you source some of the parts? Um, I've got some previously built that we can use for it, so I can use those. But what we're probably going to do is get a couple of the airframes over here, uh, test them out in a safe area, and then. Uh, test one out on the russians and if everything goes to plan we'll start getting a better assembly lineup that's awesome that that's just good to hear i mean look you're 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 out there in in the shit and you're volunteering right um but then when you you do things like that and you just add a you know i'm going to use a catch i'm going to use a buzzword here force multiplier like that right instead of an, an actual troop doing it but that's just awesome to hear so keep up the good work man thank you granny let's go uh, nancy uh, nancy uh, around a lot so nancy go ahead Thanks. Mic check. I'll clear. Okay. Sorry about the dogs barking in the background. Yeah, the just uh, no biggie. <laughs> wanted to uh, share just some information I got today. Um, DMing with somebody who is in um, the northeast area of the Sumi Oblast, and uh, was he was in touch um, with some friends in territorial defense over the last couple of days, and you know we spoke earlier in the in this group about you know planning for the long haul and they're starting to plan for the long haul as well too as far as looking at what their equipment and gear needs are going to be heading into the fall and winter you know it gets really cold in that area and you know those troops particularly in uh, tdf are going to be outdoors in the forest you know in in bunkers in trenches um so they're they're looking at gear needs uh for winter so you know just as a heads up for folks that those are the kind of things that i'm hoping maria aid with you know the the logistics subject matter experts we've got is is starting to plan in in that direction and assistance as well too uh, socks and thermal underwear, I think, were one of the first things on the list when Maria Aid was stood up. Yep. Um, we're in the dead of summer right now, and I, if I'm not mistaken, those items are still on the list of needs uh, if you go to the Maria Aid site. So, yeah, uh, you can never have enough pairs of fresh, dry socks, and um, cold weather gear will definitely be on the list of Maria Aid uh, for procurement in the future. Next, let's go to George. George, go ahead. Oh yes, I was. I wanted to ask uh, Ryan, Ryan O'Leary. Uh, are are you guys having problems uh, procuring thermal sites for drones or even for individual weapons? Um, <clears throat> as far as I mean, don't don't no, like yeah, that's fine. So there are thermals on drones. A lot of those are going to be the uh, American-made ones, not the DJIs. I know there's some DJIs that are over here that have thermals, though, some of the newer ones that they came out with. Uh, it seems a lot of the units are switching more towards 
Western-based companies, obviously, uh, DJI does a really good track record on their information sharing and some of the other stuff. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, there are drones running around with that. They still get jammed. They still get shot down. So, I mean, they always need more of them. Um, <clears throat> and they don't need anything really complex. A lot of the drones they use for that is just recon. Um, if they don't have a drop unit on it for, like, a Vlog 17. Uh, as far as the weapon thermals, I mean, they're, they're getting in country. They can always use more. Uh, they don't have to be something super fancy. A lot of times they just use them. If it's not on a weapon, they just use it as a hand sight so that they can, you know, so people can look out at night and not get hit without seeing what's out there. Um, but, I mean, yeah, we can always use more. Night vision is the biggest thing right now. Uh, night vision is a huge force multiplier versus thermal. Uh, thermals sort of wreck your eyesight after a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. They make your eyes strain a lot more, so. Okay. Uh, Ryan, I know you're not doing an ad for uh, MariaAid here, but uh, MariaAid.org, if anyone wants to help out with uh, some of the stuff Ryan's talking about. Uh, next, we'll go to Leonard. Leonard, go ahead. Uh, hey, Ryan, it's uh, good to hear your voice again and glad to hear that uh, you're, you're still upbeat and things are going well for you out there on the front. So anyway, I have a question for you. Uh, I'm in Canada, but we do a lot of business out of Iowa. And uh, I just wondered if you had any, if you had the opportunity if uh, and I don't know how much attention you you still pay to uh, political matters in the home state, but uh, if uh, if if you had an opportunity, do you have any words for the uh, the uh, the senators? I believe one is is up in the cycle, uh, Chuck Grassley, and I believe the other one uh, is a is an ex is a former veteran or a veteran, uh, Jody Ernst. So would you have any words of encouragement that you might send their way with regard to how they may carry on assisting the effort uh, in Ukraine? So uh, thanks thanks again, Ryan. This is going to sound really bad. I haven't kept up with the political scene in Iowa since I left. Uh, before I actually came over here, I was running for Congress for the 4th District. <laughs> and then when I came over here, I haven't been able to keep up on it. I would have, With Joni's track record, um i'm gonna assume she's still supporting ukraine i haven't seen any i haven't really paid attention though uh chuck grassley i just wish he would retire but that's a, just because of how old he is personally um but i mean if he if he wins this next election keep supporting ukraine yeah i hear you thanks for that ryan thank you leonard and next we'll go to scandy go ahead yeah hi hi ryan and uh thanks thanks for all the hard work that you're doing i'm i'm a thin um, and I just want to ask you that uh, we've been uh, in this space, we've been talking a lot about HIMARS and the effect that they have had on the MRD post quite deep uh, in, the, in the Russian um, side. So can you comment on the, uh, there's been discussion about this in the space, but uh, can you just confirm that uh, you have seen a uh, change in the amount of fire uh, from the Russian side, even the high. It's a little quiet. You catch that, Ryan? Yeah, I caught it. Um, I mean, it's going to depend on the area, but I mean, in certain areas, they definitely have seen a difference in fire. Um, probably not across the whole front. There's not enough HIMARS to make like a huge, like whole front line difference right now. They're definitely going to make differences where they are currently uh, at. Um, but I mean, if we can get, ideally, if we get like a hundred of them operating, we could do a lot more damage, but. Um, right now, yeah, I'd say they're, they're definitely making a dent. They're going to make, uh, you know, Russia's going to have to start moving their ammunition around more. They're going to have to, you know, keep stuff further back. So it's going to, it's going to keep putting a dent in it to whatever front line they're on. Uh, but yeah, we could use 
probably like 60 more than what we have. But yeah, it makes a difference, just not across the whole front. And I have a follow-up question, which is related to what George was asking about the thermals. Uh, I, I heard from about a week ago when we discussed previously that you have like a preference to the light intensifiers over the thermals. And is that still the case uh, in your case? So how do you feel? You know, the, uh, you know, the light in intensifiers, which is that, you know, you have the green, black sort of thing versus the, uh, you know, the thermals. So, so what is your preference? Is it the, is it the thermals or the light in intensifiers? Yeah. So, uh, my preference is night vision. And a lot of the guys who have more experience are going to say night vision as well. The difference between night vision and thermals, though, is the learning curve is extremely steep when it comes to night vision to be able to wear it for long periods of time, do movements, and, uh, you know, shoot accurately with it. If you don't have a laser, it's even harder unless you really know what you're doing. Um, <clears throat> uh, and then the other big difference with thermals versus night vision is, the, again, the thermals strain your eyes quite a bit because of how bright they are typically, even if you lower it down on brightness. Um, staring through a white and black um thermals like strains the eye a lot more um <clears throat> so if you're trying to hold over your eye for an hour or two while you're doing a recon it gets pretty pretty difficult um <clears throat> but i i still prefer the night vision it's just all around it's a better you get a more wide field of view um it's easier to pick out things um they do make you know they do have white phosphorus night vision i still stick to the re uh, green and black one uh, it's more of a personal preference a lot of the special forces guys will be like no white phosphorus is superior but that's more of just what you like so um but yeah night vision's i, I personally night vision is better but i've used it a lot um as far as ease to pick up i mean it not only ease to pick up a cost effectiveness, I would say thermals is probably what most Ukrainians should probably be rocking in their kit just because it's easy to learn on. A lot of them, you know, there's a sight on it, so you don't need to learn how to shoot night vision with a laser without a laser. <clears throat> um, so, I mean, yeah, thermals is probably the key for your average, uh, you know, ground and pounder or your average, like, infantryman. Yeah, the because in thermals, of course, the laser doesn't show up at all. So, so, so you know, the, it's completely disconnected. Uh, and as I understand that in um, in the thermals that you use, because you can choose between like uh, you know the, the gray black sort of color map, and or you could go for the blur, the sort of the red blue thingy. But it's 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 I'm I'm sure it's quite stressing to the eyes because there are not so many pixels in that image because of the resolution of the of the sensor basically uh whereas uh, for the night mission you have like lots of pixels and it's the phenomenology is quite kind of understandable but thanks for the comment i really appreciate it thank you very much ryan thank you candy and uh i saw gurney you raised your hand real quick at you do you have anything you want to add yeah, no, I think Ryan hit that. I mean, I was just going to ask Ryan to explain maybe, you know, the, the trade-off between field of view um, on some of the thermals, you know, what 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 the field of view is and, and if the thermal's a little bit bulkier or, you know, the, the eye reflex behind it sort of just, you know, sometimes the thermals can be bulky um, and, and, and have a limited field of view. But I think Ryan described that really, really good. I do want to say I'm not saying the Ukrainians can't pick up night vision. It's just to be like... Um... Oh, what's a good word for it? To be like, not really super good, but to be 
like um to be fluid with it it just takes a lot more practice whether you're walking or um things like that so yeah thermals are probably the best thing to send right now unless it's going to a more specialized uh ukrainian unit like whether it's um their alpha teams or their special forces or their like uh go to guys so yeah thermals is probably the best and teaching someone to use a thermal is you know you can they can learn it in a day and then it's just up to their marksman if they have it on a weapon um or just on them paying attention if they're using it as a handheld yeah nightly go ahead night later so you you might have a question go ahead oh his, uh, his, his mute his mic got stuck in that mute function he's just gotta get pulled back up yeah my, my mute button's actually acting a little funny you want to take i think uh scandy's in that same boat as well Oof. well carolyn's up uh, carolyn do you have a question for a guest hi there no i came up to join the speaker's panel um just to thank you guests for their, t- uh, their time um we're a voluntary group who come together and we have at the time of our good speakers so it was really on behalf um, of Maria Report I just wanted to come up and say thank you I, it's rather outside of, of my wheelhouse um, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it and I um, thank you very much Thank you Carolyn and uh, Ryan I guess I had some questions for you so um, Last time you were here, you talked about a goose caboose, and that's a Gustav gun on an A-frame, I think. Um, could you just, could you please elaborate? Thank you. No, so a goose caboose is basically you take a double-sided van where you can open both sides of the door to the van or any type of vehicle that you can open two doors on. And basically, you mount the uh, Carl Gustav inside towards one of the back rear doors to where you can rotate it all the time. And then you can roll up to a front line, swing both doors open, shoot around out, shut the doors, and roll. Um, it's just a basic quick way to throw a 84-millimeter rocket downrange real quick and hit something at 1,000 or 1,500 meters. You have to be really gotcha. careful, though, that both doors are open. Otherwise, it's going to hurt really badly. I can imagine. Uh, I don't know if my mic's coming through, hopefully. Uh, uh, George, I saw you had your hand raised earlier. Maybe you had some issues uh, getting up. Uh, go ahead, George. No, I, I, I was, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I'm just, I'm trying to think of, uh, I have a question I'm trying to think of. Let somebody else go. You're fine. Thanks, George. Um, we can go to Knight or JJ. No, you can go, JJ. Thanks. Hi, Ryan. It's nice to uh, hear you on the space again. Um, one of the things that um, many of the guests say here is that it's important to have a sense of humor going through all this, especially sometimes a dark sense of humor. Um, and I've heard that sometimes um, military people like to play practical jokes on each other. So I'm wondering if there's anything that comes to mind that is safe to share. Yeah, I mean, military-wise, yeah, I would say there's always some type of joke going on. Um, oh, what's one that's not insensitive too much? Um, I mean, some of them are pretty horrible, but they're, they're good. Um, I don't know, like, so... One that I did to somebody is I put a block of C4 with a detonator under their pillow. But it was a detonator that was already used. You just couldn't tell. Um, and that sort of freaked them out. But, I mean, yeah, we just mess with each other quite a bit. Some of them are not always appropriate to explain, though. Fair enough. Who wouldn't want to fall asleep around you? Very yeah, and there's another one. So we were getting shot at quite a bit. Uh, at the initial start of the war, I was asking everyone their boot size because I had some pretty bad boots I needed. And I was always telling the guys if they had a ten and a half and they died, I was taking their shoes first. I shouldn't laugh, but I'm laughing at that. 
it, it's still a joke in the unit. Uh, yeah, and then the other one was, uh, well, originally I was saying I was going to steal a pair of Russians boots, but their boots are shit. So that just turned into stealing my own guy's boots if they died. Yeah, it's a good reason for them to not die, especially if they're just 10 and a half. Gurney, I think you were next. Yeah, I was uh, laughing so hard there. I almost forgot my actual question, uh, but then I, 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 I was able to remember it here. Um, Ryan, uh, w- one thing to your humor point here, uh, not my actual question, but did you, uh, so how many times have you guys tossed uh, an inner or a, a disabled round into into someone's sleeping hole or something like that, whether it's uh, uh, old mortar you're, you disassembled or uh, old old RPG shell that, that's not there? Have you done that? No, we haven't, we haven't actually done that too much so we did we did find a russian position one night on a recon and we had some people uh go to do a tactical bathroom maneuver into some of their trenches before we left um but as far as tossing stuff in like people's rooms we haven't really done that too much okay and then uh back back to my my regular question here so um this came up maybe as a question last night. Just maybe you can speak to it, maybe not. Um, the the Russian narratives right now are trying to um, uh, sort of find methods of attack for uh, for taking out some of the high Mars units. Um, and as, as whack as some of it sounds, uh, the conversation got started uh, that special forces, you know, from the Russian narrative are making the rounds here. So um, we got to speak in last night just the, the difficulty of, of them pushing any recon force um, through the forward line. So maybe just asking you, could you speak to any any depths you've seen um, Russians? And, and again, whether it's a company size element, a squad size element, or platoon, do you, do you have any idea of the of the deepest they've gotten? You know, the f- 500 meters. Um, you know, a, a click. Do you, do you have any um, insight onto that? Because that would just bandied about. You know, we, we sort of tossed it in the trash bin. You know. Russian narrative went like this. Yeah, you know, they're going to send special forces team to try to take out these high Mars. Um, good, good luck with that is essentially how it went. But I was just curious if you could speak to uh, uh, some of the recon by fire or, or recon teams or SF teams, any of those um, assembled components there and just, you know, the distances they tend to operate at. Yeah, I mean, we've gone up against the VDV. So if that's who they're sending, they're not going to make it past the first line. Um I doubt that the Spetsnaz guys are going to get anywhere close to a HIMARS. I mean, they can operate far enough off the front, and I don't think the Ukrainians are um, that tactically stupid to leave something on a front like that. If they ever if they ever hit a HIMARS, it's going to be out of luck that they just find one while it's getting prepped to shoot or right after it's shooting. Um, <clears throat> or the other option is if they use, like, pro-Russian people already in Ukraine. But again, getting that close to be able to do some actual damage to put it out of service completely is going to be hard um i'm sure they're an extremely well protected asset currently so yeah i don't don't think this i mean russia can say they're sending spetsnaz all they want you know they did that up in mushroom and they just got swacked so i I don't have too much confidence in them getting anywhere near a high mars thanks ryan um o'leary i've got confirmation from uh one of the nafo members that a uh fella has been commissioned to your likeness or will be commissioned in your likeness and we'll be sharing it with you as soon as it's produced. Uh, wait, awesome. Ryan, I can't wait to see that. <laughs> I, I, Ryan, I this a... is your opportunity here to uh, put it out in the airwaves, what you'd like to see in it. You know, if you want the Mad Max RPGs all over, but spell it out for them. I'm sure they're listening. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I'm sure they're creative enough to uh, go off of it. So my, my profile picture is typically how I carry grenades or uh, RPGs, but I have a backpack that is shoved down my vest, which, probably uh 
from a safety standpoint, I don't think it would ever fly in the U.S. Army, but um, <laughs> it works. So You made it work. Uh, I had another question from a listener and uh, part-time co-host here wondering uh, how the food is and whether or not you've tried any new uh, Ukrainian fish dishes. Absolutely not. I do not eat fish anymore. Uh, I got so burnt out with like the boiled fish, whatever they gave us at the start of the war. I just don't eat it anymore. Between that and buckwheat, I try to avoid like I'll, I'll starve before I eat that stuff now. Uh, not to say it's all bad. It's just it was repetitively given every day. And then uh, when the McDonald's or whatever closed in Ukraine, they actually donated a bunch. So we had like soggy chicken McNuggets. I don't think I'll touch a chicken McNugget for years, but that's probably a good healthy reason to stay away from it anyway. So they do have good food just now when you eat the same stuff every day. If you ever see how they make those chicken nuggets, you'll probably stop eating them anyway. And Ryan, I think one of our, our listeners may have sent that to you tongue in cheek, knowing that you uh, that you said last time you couldn't stand to be served uh, any more fish from, from yeah. Russia. <laughs> Actually, the, the listener was had a serious question about uh, what you've been consuming and, and uh, how the food is as of late. And I just thought I would embellish a little and throw in the fish remark. The food's not good. I mean, on the front lines, they have MREs. Otherwise, there's usually hot food floating around. Um, I mean, no one's ever really cooking in a trench too much unless they personally want to because they're extra hungry or something. But, I mean, yeah, no one's starving. Um, they've they've gotten the food chains down, at least their logistics, either at the company level or unit level. They've, you know, um, now that there's more static front line as far as they're not getting invaded from four, three sides or whatever. It's a lot easier for them to get stuff places. So, and the volunteer groups help out a shit ton with that too. I mean, they get people, um, you know, like uh, just chocolate bars and stuff too. They're always bringing like just, uh, I guess, pogey bait is what we called it to the front lines. So, yeah, I remember from a previous time when you had joined us, you mentioned a uh, little babushka showed up in the trench with, uh, uh, fresh dumplings or something similar, which probably would have blown me away too were I in your shoes. Yeah, I remember what it's called. It's called Vereniki. Uh, they either make it with like potatoes, cabbage, or like a meat inside. The cabbage one I'm not really a fan of, but the other two are pretty good. Uh, let's go to Knight and then George. Hey, thank you very much. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, your equipment uh, and things there, and just the general situation sounds a bit like a dog robber's paradise. But Knight, um, your yeah. audio is completely garbled. I oh. couldn't understand a word you said after you said, hey, uh, if you're using Bluetooth or a headset, you might want to switch just to uh, regular audio on your phone briefly. Can you hear me better now? Still garbled. I can hear you decent. Okay. Okay. Um, well, we, we've been talking a lot about uh, what your equipment is and that kind of situation. I was wondering, especially since you mentioned you encountered BDV and so on, uh, what does the Russian equipment situation look like? Not in terms of like big high level logistics, but like the individual soldiers. I mean, do they have do they have socks? Do they you know, are they is it all a patchwork? Are they professional? You know, how, how are they stacking up in terms of that as a mixed bag? Just wondering what their personal equipment situation is like. I mean, yeah, they have like socks and stuff. So. I mean, I would, I, they have all the regular stuff, but I wouldn't say it's high quality. Um, even like the the VDV that we encountered in Mission that had more of the, you know, winter sets where it's like the full white garb and all the other stuff. It wasn't, put it this way, there was uniforms we could have took and no one really took them to wear for it. And we froze our 
Ross was off there for six days. So, um, I mean, they have decent clothing, but it's just not high quality. So, I mean, they have socks, boots, and pants and all that. It was just not very good. Um, their weapons, they're okay. Um, <clears throat> their sniper rifles, they, the VDV were carrying some type of rifle with a thermal on it. Those are pretty garbage, but they're supposed to be like a marksman rifle or something. But uh, typically, it's just like a AK-47 with iron sights. So, maybe like six magazines and a grenade but um they're not carrying anything too specialized for their average kit are, are they wearing body armor um it's like a mixed bag a lot of them were um and i mean there's you just shoot lower uh which sounds really bad but you can shoot them in the pelvis our snipers were mainly hitting them pelvis shots uh not to wound them but just because that's the best way to kill them uh if they have body armor on with the 338 you just hit them in the lower abdomen good idea shoot around the chest plate uh george actually uh ryan i i had a question i guess uh we saw some photos of some destroyed logistics chains in the beginning months of the war and uh there were some photographs specifically that were discussed in here of uh some body armor that was being transported into ukraine and it looked like the molly vests were dry rotted like they'd been in storage for 20 years and uh, some of the chest plates were like sliding out of the dry rotted fabric. And you could see that the chest plates had corroded and at least had some surface rust and pitting on them. Um, are any of these guys outfitted with like a ceramic vest or are they all wearing a uh, steel plate with a coating on it like you've got? Um, it's, it's sort of a mixed bag. Those guys have ceramics a lot, still have <clears throat> like steel plate ones. Uh, like, I, like I said, the steel plate can stop the high powered too. But if they don't have like a spray coating on it or um, like a soft thing on the front to catch the shrapnel from the round, it's end up in your chin. Yeah, it'll end up in your chin, your neck, your arms. Um, but I, I've yet to see Ukrainians not running around with a plate carrier or like a armor, like bulletproof vest, unless they choose to do so. There are some that do. Um, I was speaking more to uh, the Russian average. You know, somebody you run across oh, the KIA, no, whether or not those guys have anything. The Russians is like all steel crap. Uh, we have found some ceramic helmets that were from like a BMP that we blew up, but uh, majority of the stuff is uh, that we've seen is like metal. Gotcha. Uh, one follow-up, and then I'll let uh, some other people ask questions. Uh, did you source your PPE in-country, or did you take that with you? Yeah, so I'm a pretty basic person versus being like a Gucci gear guy. I didn't bring anything but pants and cold weather gear. When I came over here, I just got everything in country. I just wear whatever, whatever they have is what I took. Um, but again, I'm pretty basic. <laughs> so, um, and that's, that's mainly from being with the Kurds for four years in Iraq, you know, they didn't have it all. So I just use what I have. I actually didn't wear body armor for like the first two months of the war, <laughs> which uh, I finally did. Cause my old commander was like, yeah, you got to wear one now. So, um, otherwise, yeah, I really didn't wear any body armor. I just wore like an old uh, Vietnam-style LBV. Well, I would uh, say, given by the way you wear those RPGs, um, you're a no-frills kind of guy. I, I didn't figure you for a Gucci gear, man. Uh, yeah, my unit, all the guys that are like Western just call me the White Haji, which sounds really politically inappropriate, but it sort of fits considering your background, I would say it makes perfect sense. And uh, it, it's not intended as a pejorative political incorrectness aside. 
let's go to George and then Knight. Uh, Ryan, I was going to ask you, has anybody tried to jerry-rig one of those uh, milk work, like the revolving 40-millimeter grenade launchers on any of the drones? Have you seen anybody attempt that? Because at least that would give you more than just one or two little bomblets uh, falling on a on a Russian position. I think your recoil is going to be what gets you there. Yeah, the recoil would be bad. Um I know they have tried like putting one of the disposable rockets and remote firing them off of a drone. I don't know how well that worked out. Um, I'm going to assume probably not very well. But yeah, the recoil would be bad. <clears throat> um, I've taken apart the 40 millimeters, though, with a handsaw so that we could drop them from drones, um, which I would advise nobody doing because it's, it's not very safe. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> with the 40 millimeter US rounds, you can actually do like four or five on it once you take it apart and just do the explosive part of it. So um, the main thing they use from drones, though, is going to be the VOG 17s and some homemade stuff like that. Okay, thank you. I was just thinking maybe a big, uh, like a larger drone, like one of those octo drones, maybe they would be able to jerry-rig something so that it absorbs a recoil, like a, to try that. Yeah, the weight would probably be the issue. Um, with the larger drones, they'll drop RPGs, 82s, 120s. Um, so basically, with the larger drones, they typically try to hit a big target. Uh, unless there's a Russian tank being stupid, then they'll obviously hit that. But um as far as the units that I've worked with lately, they've been going after the bigger, bigger targets, the the ones like their HQs, comm stations, and stuff like that. Knight, uh, go ahead. Hey, thank you. Um, one other question I wanted to ask is, I know you're you're not technically foreign legion, or you're some sort of association or something like that. There, uh, but I was wondering, like, how does um, I mean, since you're an American on there, I mean, what is the relationship? On there. I mean, do you anticipate any issues coming back to the U.S. after this is over? You know, does the U.S. have any, you know, countries have any, like, contact with you, like a liaison, or do they just, like, just straight up ignore you guys and pretend the Foreign Legion doesn't exist? Um, I don't know. I'm sure some Westerners stay in contact with the U.S. government. I just basically don't. Um, there's no reason for me to. I'm not here for America. I'm here for Ukraine, so I don't need to talk to my government. Um as far as the Legion goes, the reason that I kept my distance is I saw how bad the Foreign Legion went with the Iraqi Kurds and the Syrian Kurds. They have worked out quite a bit of their issues as of this month, so I won't talk bad on them as much anymore. Um, it's still a heavy work in progress, um, <clears throat> but they have their command staff all figured out now, and the admin side's picking up the slack, so uh, it's getting better. We're still under the International Legion. We're just not working with them. We work in a more specialized thing than what they're doing. So, But it's getting better. Just taking time. Uh, Gurney, go ahead. Yeah, hey, Ryan, wanted to ask you, since you, you specialize um, in carrying the RPG, I uh, saw a video the other day, and it looked like some guy was hammering an adapter into the back of a... Uh, it looked like a mortar, but uh, it looks like they were adapting it to uh, get an anti-personnel um, uh, explosive warhead onto some sort of carrier. I, I was wondering, I don't know if you've seen that or you know of that, but he was hammering a metal adapter in the back of it. It looked like you could uh, use the, the propellant charge from uh, an RPG um, and have it rejiggered with that warhead. So instead of like a, a, an armor penetrating warhead, they were getting um, some sort of anti-personnel. Have, have you seen that? Have you done that? 
Yeah, so basically what they do is they take the uh, <clears throat> the RPG booster and then the lower part of the RPG and they basically hammer an adapter on it and put an 82 on it. I've seen it done with 60s. With an 82, you get like a 1,000 meter range <clears throat> if you take out the self-destruct mechanism. Um, so, I mean, is it accurate? No, but it's definitely, uh, it's, it's a lot quieter. I mean, you're not going to hear it go off from 800 meters away so it's basically a silent mortar <clears throat> but it's more of like a harassing fire unless you're close enough that you can um like probably within 600 meters probably so uh, yeah it's done they still do it they're still making the parts to do it so um the separatists do the same thing too as well they've they've gotten pretty handy with it so is that uh does that is that charge that they're hammering it into is that rendered safe enough that they can whack on that uh with no static charges or anything like that you're not worried too much when you're hammering that adapter in. um an eod guy would probably say no but i mean it's safe enough to where you ain't going to set it off as long as you haven't messed with the fusing mechanisms before you do it um it's pretty much safe so to do that what you should do is when you take you should put the adapter on and then put the uh the stuff back in it so um, it really just depends how they're doing it. I haven't seen that video, so it really just depends on what they're all doing to it. And um, but yeah, it's predominantly safe. I mean, it's explosive, so you shouldn't be hammering it. But uh, you know, like I said, I cut into a forty millimeter with a handsaw to disable the inertia fusing on it. So uh, whatever works works. Just don't be in a room full of people when you do it. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. And last question here. Uh, if you can speak to it at all, are, are you are any of the units you're coming across, the Ukrainian units that, you, that you're interacting with, whether it's, it's your units or others, um, are they saying anything about the, the Russian units, whether the replacement units are coming in or the, the rotation on the Russian units? Are you seeing any movement up or down uh, that, that would suggest, um, you know, the, the quality is either going down or the quality is going up or their um, exhaustion levels are changing? Do you have any input on that? I mean, that's, that's really, like, frontline specific. It just, just depends what part of the country, or not country, what part of the frontline you're on. Um, <clears throat> there was, a, like, in the east during the Severo operation, there was definitely a lot more activity that way. Um, <clears throat> I'm up towards the northeast now. I would say the quality has dropped significantly, but, I mean, there's still artillery in the shit out of us. So, um, But as far as their fighters... It seems like they're moving their good troops to whatever front they're pushing, and then basically the rest of them are just not worth a shit. So um, they're just basically sitting there to make sure the Ukrainians don't counter push and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think most of their good units, they're just pushing to whatever front line they're assaulting, and then the ones getting left to the other areas are more of the uh, inexperienced. And does that show it? Do you think that would show itself more? um in in their vehicle operations or their dismount operations or does it show it in both if if that were the case if 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 they're putting fillers you know um you know back benchers into this stuff do you do you see it the effects of it worse with with their maneuver elements or with their dismounts or is it the same just you know a mess i mean it's just an overall mess um i fly drones quite a bit so you can definitely tell when the better units are towards the front because they don't do certain things these other guys do but i mean it's it's pretty easy to tell who's on what line. Um, not as far as units, but like experience-wise. Um, yeah, there's 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 a big difference. You can tell depending on what front line you're on if they're experienced or not. Um, and again, a lot of them, it looks like they just move all the experienced guys into one sector. 
And then the ones that don't have experience just basically get slaughtered when the good guys are there. They're more experienced guys move. So uh, predominantly with artillery and everything else, um, they just, yeah, they just don't know what they're doing as much. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, I have another request from the listener gallery. Um, last time you were on, you mentioned that you guys were, or you and some of your colleagues were trying to uh, put together a homebrew Byrock tar. Uh, what, if any, progress have you made in that regard? So, the, we're actually focusing more on, like, the switchblade stuff because the price of a switchblade, no offense to the company that makes them, is really high. Um, you don't so say. We, yeah, so we sort of switched over that. And actually, like, um, at, once we get the base station and some of this other stuff in, the average cost of one of these 40-kilometer drones is, like, $4,000 versus, what, 15,000 or 16,000 our payloads triple that and the distance is what's a switchblade like two to four kilometers ours is 40 kilometers so like 20 times that almost or whatever so um the same airframe that we have though we could actually use as a sort of like a biractar we wouldn't be able to use it for rockets or missiles but we could use it for dropping bombs so um if they want one set up like that we can do that it's just Right now, we're just trying to get a big, giant switchblade that we can drive into a, a house full of Russians. Please, God, do that on video. I mean, I'll, I'll be happy. I'm sure everybody will be thrilled if you do it, regardless of whether there's any footage. But uh, I personally would relish watching that video. Yeah, it'll definitely all be video. That was actually one of the expensive parts is getting the... Um, the receiver transmitter part for the um, for the compression rate or whatever to transfer the video footage that far was actually pretty pricey. That's like a third of the drone cost. Um, so yeah, that it, it'll all definitely be video footage. And if we actually have to, we can actually cut back the distance from what we're trying to do um, even further, and then we can lower the price even more. But yeah, the biggest issue was basically the video quality, so we could actually watch to get signal transmission that far and actually have video. Yeah, yep. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, Paul or Leonard were next. I'm going to go to whoever gets off mute first. Okay. Dr. Paul. Okay. All right. Go ahead, Leonard. You there? Yep. Oh, hey, hey uh, Ryan. I just had a quick question for you. I was laughing quite a bit about that your rendition with regard to the uh, moose or the goose caboose. We've just learned that, the, that Canada has... Uh, authorized a, a number of, of our, our bison APC carriers uh, delivered to Ukraine. I'm just wondering if you, A, if you were ever able to get your hands on, on one or if you've seen one uh, any, in the vicinity. And uh, B, uh, would that make a nicely upgraded uh, moose caboose if you could get your hands on one? So thank you, Ryan. I've never been in one, so I'd have to see it, but we could probably rig it up to be one. Um, <clears throat> I typically stay far, far away from uh, any type of armor. Um, I've ridden on a BTR like twice and absolutely hated it. I'd rather walk the 10 kilometers um, just because it's a giant target. So I typically try to avoid any type of machinery, um, military looking around me. But yeah, I mean, um, if they're sending them over here, they'll definitely be used so that's good uh they do need a lot more armored vehicles um just to move troops uh you know medevac and stuff like that because the ambulances like the hospital group has a really good program what they were you doing um they had a bus wreck recently 
and they've had quite a few medics get killed running uh their ambulances too so um yeah the more the more stuff like a bison or an mrap or whatever that we get the better too so i would say whatever you've been doing thus far has worked for you pretty well so yeah i mean i've seen russians get hit riding on the top of a bmp and i don't want to get an ejection seat like that so i try to avoid being on top of any type of military vehicle for any period of time well, I don't imagine the uh, shock absorbers on those are too great either. So, no, but I mean they don't get tossed as far as a turret, but they get they get tossed <laughs> pretty far. <laughs> no low Earth orbit, but high enough that you might break your hip when you land. Uh, Doctor Paul, go ahead. Thanks, Ryan, and uh, hi, Ryan. Um, I hope you're staying safe out there. I have a question about how you would assess the effectiveness of the Ukrainian tank crews versus the russian tanks i've only seen a few engagements on twitter um you know we haven't really seen the ukrainian tanks come out in full force um but that's likely to gonna start happening so you know what's your assessment and how, how would you kind of compare and contrast the two um i don't know if you'll ever see the tanks actually on full force just because of the threat of the <clears throat> artillery and actually probably more so the aircraft which if they get anti-air you might see the ukrainian tanks come out more um i would i, I would put my if it was like a tank on tank crew i'd probably put it on the uh ukrainians uh the tank crews seem to be pretty pretty spot on like most of the times um and they're pretty good at hiding themselves. Obviously, they're going to get caught out in the open once in a while or get hit. But um, I'd say the Ukrainian tankers are probably, they seem a little bit better trained uh, and a little bit more organized. They they just communicate a lot better. They also do multi-roles. When we were in Moshun, our tank crews are actually our mortar group, too, which was pretty nice. Um, if we had a BMP roll up on us, they'd just hop in their tank real quick, move forward, shoot it, go back and start launching mortar rounds again. So... Um, I would say, yeah, the Ukrainian ones are probably just better trained. Uh, as long as they don't lose as much as the Russians have for tank crews, it'll probably continue to be that way too. So, Thanks, Ryan. That's helpful. And uh, it's good to hear that you've seen them actually taking other Russians out. So I appreciate it. The only thing I will say is, you know, Russia probably still has the advantage as far as superiority in numbers and maybe in a few of their more, uh, their more advanced tanks. But I mean, if a new, a new tank crew in like a T90 or whatever, one of the Russian new tanks is going to be as experienced on operating as a Ukrainian unit that's been doing it for four or five, six months, a year or two. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, 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 with the way Russia's been losing tanks and stuff, their tank crews are probably running slim on fully trained and fully experienced compared to the Ukrainians. Uh, dry fly. Hi, Ryan. <clears throat> I uh, got a quick question for you. Oh, and also, I hear you're from Iowa. Is that accurate? Yes, I am. Good for you. Um, I lived in Iowa for many years, did business there for 30. I live north, uh, one state north of you. But uh, two of my kids were born in Cedar Rapids, and I did a ton of work with deer in Waterloo. So I always enjoyed my time in Iowa. Good people. It doesn't surprise me you're, uh, you're succeeding. Um, my question would be you're um, building drones, you say and kind of copying the switchblade um except making it better have you guys tried to adapt them to anti-drone efforts and i say that because i've gone to a number of uh, drone um, trade shows uh the years i was in engineering i was selling components to all kinds of people aerospace agriculture you name it oil and gas but i did do some uh uh 
companies that were making uh, UAVs, and they always said that the number one job that's going to come out of it, the number one mission is going to be anti-drone even more than drone uh, warfare. And um, I've always thought that something similar to a switchblade would actually be a good platform if it could approach uh, enemy drones and, and uh, you know, fire off. You could fire them off somewhere. Have you guys looked at that? Um, we haven't. I know. So the only thing I really looked into that recently, it wasn't on purpose. I just fell down the rabbit hole of drone electronics. Um <clears throat> There was a company in like 2010 or 11 that was researching an anti-drone drone, but basically it jammed the signal as it was flying somehow or another. I don't know if it used a different type of um, frequency or whatever. It was like they used like 2.1 and all these other frequencies you can use. But um, there was a company, I don't think ever, anything ever came of it, but that was probably just due to, it was before the, the curve of the drone warfare, but I've seen where they mounted a drone jammer on a drone um, and we're doing tests like that. As far as using one to like blow up in the sky and hit one, um, I think the issue is going to be the targeting software is probably not quite there to hit the really small stuff yet. It'll get there at some point. And then your cost is going to be the other factor. Um, using a $15,000 switchblade to knock a $2,000 DJI out of the sky um, is probably going to be cost in ineffective for a lot of countries unless they get the cost down on it well unless um, they're using that de- unless they're using that other drone to target a million dollar um artillery you know mobile artillery true and that, like, that's just there's got to weigh the cost risk on it um the other thing is like um the 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 biggest thing i think there's the the portable stuff i think that they're coming out with is probably going to outweigh the drone usage on it um but we'll see. I don't know. I mean, like I said, I'm not really a drone guy. I started falling down the rabbit hole on this because I didn't feel like $15,000 switchblades with a small distance work good. So I was like, let's build one cheaper and with commercial stuff. No, that's the right way to go. Um, the only thing I would suggest is that if you talk to them again, that idea of having a shrapnel-like explosion means that you probably don't have to target them quite as close. And it wouldn't take a ton of shrapnel to knock some of those out of the sky. That's my thought. Yeah, and we might be able to find a smaller commercial drone to do that with and then just use a, a command debt with a, like a little claymore in the front nose of a drone to hit the other drone. That'd be, I'd have to look into that in the yeah, future. Yeah, that'd be worth looking into because I think you could – the Russian drone – I mean, the really big drones, yeah, they're not going to knock them out. But those little crappy ones that are tearing up the artillery, I mean, it's just basically like a shrapnel bomb. Just get close enough that you tear it all to pieces, and they'll drop. They'll fall. So, anyway, I wish you the best of luck, and, you know, stay safe. Thanks, DriveFly. JJ. Thanks. Um, Ryan, I'm wondering if there's anything that's maybe took you by surprise that's not confidential, obviously, um, but that you've learned from fighting with the Ukrainian military that you think might be useful if it were employed with, say, the U.S. or Canadian military? Oh, boy, I'm going to get a lot of hate for this. Um, everything the U.S. government trained the last 20 years needs to get reversed back to, like, 1960s to 1980s when it comes to force on force. <laughs> the adaptability of Ukraine is a lot better than um, what I think the U.S. probably would have been as far as in a larger picture, like the units being able to adapt in their AO and then being able to adapt with other units. But um, we rode the counterterrorism coattails real hard. And... It's they just need to revert back to 
more of the forest on forest in a much larger scale than uh, work on like unit autonomy too, as far as adapting on the battlefield to certain situations. Looky there, no hate. If you get any trolls, let us know. We're happy to uh, activate NAFO Article 5. Uh, Knight, go ahead. Ah, thanks again. Um, you're talking about drones, and one, the, the idea of a claymore on a drone sounds particularly devious. But the uh, there's a lot of talk about the Switchblade 300s. And I was wondering, is especially how small the warhead is and the cost of it, is it more, has it been effective? Has it more, you know, hype or... Is it, you know, is it a legit system? Is this something that, you know, we in the U.S. should be using, you know, going forward? Is it is it something that's being actually useful in Ukraine? Yeah, like the system itself. So switchblades are good. Our unit, um, my previous unit actually that was in Severo killed quite a bit of people with it. Um, it's just a limited use item and you have to, it'd be good for like special operations or like the U.S. could use it effectively just because of how our military operates versus like ukraine um <clears throat> and like britain could probably use it effectively but again it's such a small warhead is it like the 300 is obviously basically anti-personnel but um in an artillery war like you see now the two kilometer standoff isn't um that great you know when the artillery can hit you know 15 kilometers and that um so in, even in some areas these you know, you might have a trench line that's a kilometer away from each other, but still it's not – using a $15,000 basically flying warhead to kill one guy is just not effective uh, in my books. But again, though, it depends on the situation. Like the urban fighting stuff, obviously it's a great standoff tool. Um, but it would be better if you could actually swap out the warheads depending on what you wanted to hit. Like for the one that we're building, you have a fragmentation sleeve. You can pull that in and out, or you can – Put the EFP in if you want. Um, and basically, it's just a shape charge is what an EFP is, is going to be. But um, I think if they would have made it to where you could adapt it, make it modular, it'd probably be 10 times better. Um, and that's just something that they're going to have to test through and see if they could do that or uh, just market the 300 as anti-personnel and the 600 as the better option. Um, personally, I like modular systems. You should be able to adapt your weaponry on the battlefield as it fits. But that's something that hasn't really been adapted well, whether it's from grenades or um, even rockets. The Germans have done pretty good with their rockets. The Matador you can use as a Hesh round or a, a Hesh round is basically anti-structure, or you can use it as anti-armor, so that's good on the Germans. But, yeah, the modular stuff is where I think military tech should be heading. All right. Thank you. And uh, a quick follow-up since you mentioned the 600s. Um, if you actually seen any of those? I mean, are they actually out there? Because it sounded like we only had a few of them. I haven't seen any, but supposedly they're out there. I've yet to see video of it or hear of anyone using one. So they might not be here yet, but suppose they're here. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll see how effective they are. I think they will be effective regardless. Um, <clears throat> just because of the vulnerability. Like, I mean, it's pretty obvious where the vulnerability is on most of this armor now. So um, if they can get a switchblade hit, in those areas, I mean, it's going to be effective. Um, <clears throat> again, the distance on the standoff is going to be the hard one because the Russians aren't as dumb anymore. They're not parking tanks always on the front line. So, you know, I think a 5K, 5, 000, like 5,000 meter, 5km range uh, is probably the minimum for any type of loiter munition type thing now. Um, unless it's like a, you know, urban environment or there's like an offensive happening at that time. But, um, 
for the static line stuff, you need at least something that goes to 5,000 meters. All right. Thank thank you very much. And uh, yeah, if you run into like any technical issues, I know there's, you could probably crowdsource a lot of ideas because right? I'm sure there's a lot of engineers that have some spare time would be happy to help you. Not me. I'm stupid, but other people. Uh, I think in a previous appearance, somebody had offered to deliver him some uh, circuit boards and he warned them against that just because of the nature of the work he does. Um, I actually had a question about uh, any um, technical expertise you might be imparting to uh, local Ukrainians as of lately, but if that's slightly sensitive uh, as far as the topic is concerned, I'm happy to uh, move on. And I also want to be conscientious of your time. I think we've been just hitting you with lightning round questions for probably the last 30 minutes or so. So if uh, you're getting worn out or if you need to move on, feel free to speak up. Yeah, as far as like me teaching the Ukrainians anything, um, <laughs> so because the TDF is territorial defense and because they've had guys from, you know, the Ukrainians called in a lot of people and they've had a lot of volunteers. Uh, I've actually probably learned more as far as the uh, electronics I need for stuff or at least adapted to what they've learned. Uh, they do have some nifty little tricks with some stuff. Uh, I won't go into what it is because they're still using it, but um, <clears throat> I don't think I've really taught them anything as far as like, I've, I've probably taught them some stuff, but they've also taught me. So it's been like probably a fair trade. Um, <clears throat> learning more of how to disassemble the Soviet stuff was key. And then I showed them how to do some American ones. Um, and like, the Soviet stuff is still a lot easier to disassemble because most of the U.S. stuff is crimped on, so it's just a pain in the ass. Um, but I would say no, we've probably it's probably been a fair trade on teaching each other stuff. Um, <clears throat> as far as time, I'm going to drink like a pot of coffee earlier because I was doing work on some reports. So uh, you mentioned that uh, U.S. hardware is crimped on, or at least the wire connections. How are the Russian? Uh ordinance or or devices connected what are they using crimping tools or wire nuts or i mean obviously they're not using crimping tools uh, for the explosives if you have two pipe wrenches you can take apart a russian ordinance um two pipe wrenches and a screwdriver typically is all you need for the u.s stuff you typically got to get a handsaw out and really beat on stuff which isn't always the safest option but it works it's just uh you know, I can take apart a bunch of Vogue 17s in five minutes where it might take me 15 minutes to do a 40 millimeter. Um, same with like the M72 laws. You can disassemble one, but it's a pain in the ass. The RPG 29s or whatever they are, <clears throat> the disposable RPGs, literally there's two screws on the back. You pull up on it, you can pull the rocket out, and you can swap the fusing to like controlled debt or electric. So, um, yeah, the Soviet stuff, the Russian stuff is just far easier to take apart. And uh, 